behind. This is the Northern Ireland. Okay, good. They can hear us. Okay. Good morning, members. Um, you're very welcome to this morning's meeting. Um, welcome all those who are on Starleaf and those who are in the chamber. Um, we do have a quorum, and just advise that those who are in the chamber just to um, make sure that you maintain social distancing throughout the meeting. Um, today, we will consider subordinate legislation, uh, departmental briefing on the structural maintenance and winter service, and we'll also receive a briefing from Assembly Research and Information Service on business models within the United Kingdom and the Irish Republic on water sector and electric vehicle waste. Can I just advise those who are joining us remotely and that it would be really helpful if you use the hands up icon just to register that you wish to ask questions at each agenda item and between myself and the clerk we'll try to keep a, a close eye on that and try to be as fair as we can and also if members um, could mute their mic when they're not asking questions just so that we can allow everyone just to hear the evidence and to follow the meeting so um, just appreciate that. Um, have we any apologies? We don't have any registered. Um, any members online wish to register an apology for anyone? No? Okay. Moving then to Chairman's Business. I don't have any at, at this stage. Um, moving then to Draft Minutes, Item 3 at page 6. That's for the meeting of the 3rd of February. Are members content with those minutes? Do you have any concerns in relation to those? No, they're an accurate reflection. Thank you. Thank you. Agreed. Moving then to matters arising item four at page 13. And again, that's from the meeting of 3rd of February. Do members have any issues in relation to that item? Any issues, issues that you would like to raise? No? Content? At page 17, we have outstanding um, committee requests for information. And as you'll see, there are still a few which are considerably overdue and have a number of uh, reminders have been sent. Members, any issues there? Content? Okay. Moving then to tabled at page three, we have a draft response to the Committee for Finance regarding um, the committee's draft budget considerations. So I'm not sure whether members have had an opportunity to see that or not. Maybe if members are content, maybe what we'll do is maybe return to that at the end of the meeting, if, just to give you an opportunity to read it, if that's okay. Okay, we'll do that. Agreed. Okay. okay, maybe somebody will remind me. <laughs> just in case. It... <laughs> okay. Okay, moving then to correspondence at item five. Just draw your attention to um, the memo at page 29 and also tabled at page six. Uh, members, anything they wish to highlight? Obviously, at page 36, we do have the ministerial response to. Um, the committee's correspondence and they were issues that related to our meeting of the 20th of January. I suppose I, I would sort of register I suppose, disappointment in the fact that the minister is still very much of a mind not to do, um, not to give any assistance to taxi operators um, and also his issues in relation to hauliers. Um, we don't have, seem to have a clear 
um, direction from her either with regards to what was a fairly simple question um, with regards to coach operators, and that's whether the current scheme was going to be extended or there was going to be a new scheme taking into consideration all of the um, issues that the, that the operators had raised. So I suppose I would be disappointed with regards to that. Do members have any other comments? Um, Ms Kimmins and then Ms Anderson. Yeah, thanks, Chair. As, as you said by yourself, very disappointed, um, particularly in relation to the hauliers and that. Um, I would ask if we can um, ask them and respond to the Minister to ask her to engage with the representatives who've been calling for a means-tested support scheme because um, that's what we've been saying all along, you know, that there there is definitely evidence there that, that hauliers need support. Um, and as I said, I'm at a bro like a broken record at this stage, but I mean, it's, it's not all hauliers, I, I think, that will will need that, but I would be asking the minister to engage with, with the representatives and kind of get that evidence that, that would support that in terms of a means tested support scheme. Okay, um, Ms. Anderson. Chair, I, I want to concur with, uh, with what Liz has said and I know she has brought it to our attention and I've been quite surprised at some of the comments that we have received, particularly um, the minister saying that there was no exceptional circumstances. Now, they give a figure uh, that includes Britain and here about the number that's on furlough and the percentage of HGVs that are parked up. Maybe we could ask how many of them are actually relating here to the north because that might change the, uh, the percentage. But I know that Liz has been uh, running with this and it's something that I think is a committee we need no more information about. The same thing, Chair, with regards to coach operators. Now, I intend to write to the Minister after meeting with um, a small number of coach operators, as you said at our meeting last week when we had the presentation. Uh, thankfully, we got it and we got an insight from other coach operators, but it wasn't fully represented of the entire industry. And I am still concerned with the criteria that was set which the smaller coach operators believed that they fulfilled that criteria only then to be excluded and to be told that they weren't eligible. And I'm concerned that that rolls over into if there is a second scheme, as you said, there's no clarity on that. So I do think we need to delve into this a bit more um, if we can return to the minister again and respond to what she has given to us as a committee and tell her that we're not satisfied, we need more information, and we do believe that there are issues that can be ironed out if there's a political will there to do so. Okay, and, and I, there, there isn't really any clarification as to how um, those sort of smaller operators who aren't represented by the two larger groups are actually being consulted um, or communicated with. Um, Mr Muir? Thank you very much, Chair, and I agree with those comments in relation to hauliers and taxi operators. It's a disappointing response, and I think that there needs to be greater assistance given to taxi operators and also hauliers. And uh, Liz has outlined the issue there in relation to hauliers, and their specific focus needs to be given on those who are enduring hardship. Uh, as part of the letter at the beginning, there's also a response to the issue around battery energy storage. And I am extremely disappointed with that response. It fails to deal with the issues that have been raised. There's a number of projects being brought forward 
who are now as a result of this change in planning um, are, are in danger and that's a significant impact upon any efforts we're making in Northern Ireland towards renewable energy. So um, I think we just have to note the disappointment. It doesn't seem the department's up for listening around this and for engaging that this change in planning was made without any engagement or consultation. And now they're just uh, going ahead with that despite the concerns being raised. Okay. Um, would it be useful for department officials up to speak to that? It would be very useful if that would be possible, Chair. Anyone else? Mr. Hilditch. Chair, yes, my, my responses are, are, are disappointing. I think we need to establish as well. There was a lot of advice went out there for the uh, taxi depots not to apply through the Section B of the other funding stream. Could we establish if anybody has been successful to date with that? Because you can't go to two funders, you know, it's one of the basics of uh, the funding schemes. But could we find out <coughs> if any, any depots or operators have been successful to date through Section B of the other funding? A number of weeks ago we had received a, in, in one of the papers that perhaps two operators had applied to that, but that may have been because they weren't aware that they could. Um, but it doesn't really answer the question as to whether or not they've been successful. So that may be something that we wish to raise with um, economy. Anyone else at this point? Anything further to say? Just to broad, not necessarily even just the minister's response, but any other piece of correspondence. Mr. Boyden um, registered um, a comment as well. Can I call you for that? Yeah, correspondence, sir. Yeah. <coughs> Obviously, we contacted by some of the industry chair about the operational hours in in, in Belfast in particular. So I know that the the departments are re, is reviewing the taxis legislation at the minute, and I'd like to support the committee to write just to the department just to uh, confirm or clarify are they looking at that element of the the regulations. So basically, that's that's the gist of it. Okay. So are our members content? Um, and with the suggestion on the correspondence memo. Okay, thank you. Then moving it to item six, which is the subordinate legislation SL1s, which aren't subject to assembly proceedings. So page 91 through to 103. So we have SR1 2021-19, the Parking Places, Disabled Persons, Vehicles Amendment Order, Northern Ireland 2021. Page 96, we have SR 2021-20, the Loading Bays on Roads Amendment Order, Northern Ireland 2021. At page 99, we have SR 2021-22, the Parking Places, Disabled Persons, Vehicles Amendment Number 2, Order, Northern Ireland 2021. And page 103, we have SR 2021-23, the Parking Places, Disabled Persons, Vehicles Amendment Number 3, Order, Northern Ireland 2021. As I've said, the statutory rules are not subject to assembly proceedings. There has been no change to the SR since the SL1s were submitted to the committee. Are members content with the statutory rules? Content. Content, content, Okay, thank you very much. Moving then to um, item seven, which is the departmental briefing and structural maintenance and winter service um, tabled 
in your packs we have the structural maintenance briefing paper and also the winter service briefing paper uh, just remind all those involved in the meeting that Hansard will record and I shall welcome via Starleaf I hope yes we have um, Connor Lockery director of networks network services and we have Joe Lawson network maintenance and development you're both very welcome to the committee meeting this morning. Thank you. Thank you. And um, uh, Connor, um, are you going to to lead and then make some yeah. opening remarks? Okay. Thank you. Can you can you hear me? Okay. We can. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, listen. Thank you, Chair, for asking us along here to discuss these two issues being, obviously, as you mentioned, winter service and uh, our structural maintenance. Hopefully, the briefing is self-explanatory, but I think it's worth taking uh, a quick run through them, and then happy to take questions at the end. So you'll be aware that we carry out precautionary softening of carriages on main roads to prevent ice from, from forming. And the current policy is that we, we salt route that carry more than 1,500 vehicles per day, and in exceptional circumstances, um, road carrying between 1,000 and 1,500 vehicles per day. And what that means then is that how that translates is that uh, we cover 28% of the network, picked up 80% of the of the, the traffic journeys. So it's there are 109 salting routes out there, 7,000 kilometres every time we go out. And we do that in just over three hours, and the cost of that is about £80,000 every time we, we, we do a run. So probably worth mentioning that that cost of the order of five to £7 million, pounds, um, and extending that if we targeted 90% of, of, of trips, that would, that would double. And if we wanted to move towards 100% and get in all routes, that would double, quadruple. So, so we're looking at another, it would take us... From a current bill of five to seven million up to something like 20 to 28 million so there are uh, massive increases associated with that, with that outside of the existing policy then um, we we sold to small settlements in rural areas that's uh, settlements containing 100 dwellings or more and we also carry a priority secondary salting to, to rural schools those that are most affected by the winter weather conditions As well as what we do within the department, then um, they are DDFO contractors also carry out winter service on the, the, the motorway and A class network, including the West Link. And so they do about 185 kilometres. And outside of that, again, and, and when there's prolonged severe winter weather, we have arrangements in place with councils for the removal of ice and snow from, from town centre areas. Looking at our funding and our I'll start. The, the full cost is about seven million per year, but it could go as high as ten million, as happened in 2017, 2018. Uh, and, and in terms of this year, then given the competing demands, uh, the minister set the opening budget uh, three million pound for winter winter gritting, plan being to bid in subsequent monitoring rounds for for further funding. And in October, then we got a further five million for. Sorry, Connor, it's very difficult. To Sorry, can you? It's quite difficult to hear, and you're breaking up. So I just wonder if there's a if there's a, 
a clearer mic for you to use or just reposition slightly better? Maybe I have, I have moved closer as well. Yeah, it's still, it's still Is that breaking, any better? Yeah, it's still breaking up quite um, sort of slightly, so we're not, we're not getting a clear run of what you say. We'll try. try okay. Well, uh, I'll continue on. Let me see how it goes. Okay. Thanks. So, so basically, what I was saying was that our originally three million pounds was held for winter gutting. We got five million in October. Um, uh, so, so as things currently stand, we've we've an allocation of eight million pounds. We think that's. Um, appropriate that that should address our needs for this year. Are you hearing me better now? Just so that I can check. No. It's well, we're, we're we're catching part of it. It's not. It's 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 still not great. Okay. Um, well, I'll continue on because I think when our, our chair, a lot of this will be what you've heard before. Um, and then we'll see how we get on, sure, what we move to questions. Okay. Right, so at paragraph 13 then, I'd highlighted what our um, funding was in recent years for winter service, and it was 9.7 million in 17-18, and 5.2 in 18-19. So you can see there's quite a range. So on average, there's 78 call-outs per year, Using sixty-two uh, thousand pounds of salt, and in terms of this year, we've 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 had fifty-seven callouts and used fifty-three thousand tons of salt. So, in terms of our overall capacity, at the start of the year, we we our, our salt stocks are increased to sixty thousand tons in in the barns, and. We have access to a further 20,000 tonnes at Irish salt mines. Now, I know the committee was meant to go to Irish salt mines at, at a stage. That, I don't think that happened, but it's certainly, if restrictions left, it's certainly well worth a visit. So um, we then top up our salt barns then from October through to the end of the year. And then we take stock in January uh, and we start to run the stocks down between the end and the end of the, end of the year. So at this point in time, we have 35,000 tonnes of, of, of salt and stock, so that will be sufficient to, 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 see, to cover the rest of the year. On other roads then, outside of that, we, we put salt bins and salt piles are provided by the, to the public to be used on a self-help basis. So out there, about over 5,000 salt lands and over 50,000 salt piles are provided. And these are restocked as and when required, but subject to the availability of resources at a given time, which can be difficult because when we're in a severe event, all our industrial staff are involved with the winter service operation. Looking at the staff we have involved then, um, we, we get our forecasting service from the Met Office, and they also provide us with an embedded advisor who provides more detailed local information 
to help improve our decision making. Over a season, on any particular night, we have 300 staff on duty. And that includes a whole range of personnel, drivers, loaders, fitters, duty controllers, and, and they're supplemented. We will have 130 gritters and 12 stone blowers um, should they be needed. There are different arrangements for snow. It's obviously a more resource-intensive exercise. And uh, in severe weather events, uh, we have the capacity to bring in farmers or contractors to assist efforts in, in clearance of snow. Looking at um, public information and communications, then it's, there's always going to be issues. It's important that uh, we look at the calm side and with a lead. And we have a lead communicator in place who gathers the information. And we then display that on Traffic Watch uh, and provide guidance via social media. And maybe just to conclude in the winter service piece, that certainly the department does all that it can to, to keep the roads open. But we cannot guarantee ice-free roads. And the onus is on drivers to drive in accordance with the conditions. Okay, moving on then, Chair, just to the, the structure maintenance briefing, and hopefully you can hear me a bit better. The, the structure maintenance the background is that, I suppose, the, the structure maintenance is a collective term for a range of activities, which includes resurfacing, reconstruction, surface dressing, patching, structure drainage. And that structure maintenance term it includes both capital and resource funding. In the current year, the Minister allocated £75 million pounds of capital towards structural maintenance and £13 million of, of resource. And in any year, then, we've received a further £6 million from vegetable. The figures actually up now were an extra £8.8 million added to the, to the original figures, and that's through um, money received and in-year monitoring, as well as other um, readjustments, both within the department. And we've also taken some funding from the uh, Department for Communities. We're also delivering schemes on their behalf. So you'll be aware that the Barton report established that we, we need £143 million pounds of, uh, to properly maintain our roads. And both the Barton report and the, the Northern Audit Office report, um, they emphasise the need for certainty around longer-term funding of, of road maintenance budgets. And they also recommended that you know that they recognise that the earlier we get the, the funding, the better, and that if we get money late in year, that that can bring in difficulties both internally and, and externally. If we currently set the, the combined um, outturn for capital and resources going with the order of 96, 97 million, leaving a shortfall of against the Barton figure for the 47 million figure. So, but for this particular year, our funding on the structure maintenance side has increased from 75 million to 83.8, which is uh, an 11.7% increase. So really, that's come from, as I said earlier, a mix of uh, we, we bid in June, um, but but the bid was unsuccessful. The the department got a two million pound allocation in October, of which 1.1 million went to structure maintenance. And if we want to maybe compare our outputs or this year with previous years, at the minute, 
that we're we're sitting at 96, 97 million, and that will will keep that under review between now and the end of the year because there there will be other minor adjustments. And the figures for other years we're looking at 54 million in 15, 16, but in the, the last two years we we spent 109 million uh, and 106 million. And when you compare that to this year's figure of 97 million, which is a projected figure. You know, given the COVID issues we had at the start of the year, that we were slow getting started, and uh, you know, there was difficulties for contractors in the earlier months, I believe that's a, a good outcome. Moving briefly to routine maintenance, then, what that uh, includes is street lighting, uh, inspection, testing, maintenance, potholes, grass cutting, gully emptying, and weed spraying. These are all very important aspects of road maintenance. And the sixty million pound budget we got for for that, and there was thirteen of that uh, earmarked for 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 street lighting and energy and IT, and the rest of that then goes to winter service and all and all the other functions that are are, are laid out in paragraph eleven. All of these services have been reduced in recent years um, due to the the limited funding. With potholes, we're now doing. Um, 50 meter deep potholes on all roads, with 20 mil millimeters being the trigger on higher traffic roads. Street lighting this year we're providing a full service. And um, gullies we're cleaning once a year. And um, grass cutting is 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 twice a year. So effectively, that's um, this year's service. And these these are all key areas um, that compete with winter service for limited resource funding that is, is available. So this really highlights the, the, the difficulties that the department and the minister face uh, when decisions are being made about uh, funding allocations. But yeah, hopefully you were able to pick up enough of that, I'm not sure, but uh, happy to take any questions. So thank you for that. It is actually quite difficult to do this. Um, so, but you've obviously taken us through to a certain extent um, the budget side. Now, I, I suppose I, I do have some concerns in relation to the fact that the department did make an eleven million pounds bid, which was unsuccessful in June. You had a limited two million pounds allocation received in October and 1.1 million of that was allocated to structural maintenance. You have highlighted, obviously, there's still a 47 million pound shortfall from the recommendations that have been made by Barton, and yet no um, bid was made in January, which is something that we would maybe would have expected. Can you explain why that was the case? Yeah, well, the bid, I suppose, is a, is a departmental uh, well, that that the structural maintenance funding did increase in January. We we got 4.5 million at January monitoring, and with a few other adjustments. So so the structural maintenance element um, within the department that funding did increase. So while the when that might have translated to a bid, it, what it did was recognise and picked up in easements and other parts of the department. Okay, so it was a, so it was an internal realignment of funding as opposed to then a, a formal request. Yes. Okay, and would yeah, you... it was internal within the department, and that enabled 
Okay, so that, that enabled then you to... So no, just an internal adjustment so... enabled 4.5, yeah. Okay. To, to, to take an extra 4.5 million. Okay, and could you have been able to cope with more than that? Had you had you been had it been made available to you, given the fact that you were you were bidding for? And I appreciate I appreciate the timing of all of this is is obviously critical, and, and the capacity then to be able to deliver on 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 works. But um, could you have coped with more? Uh, no, that's certainly the question we were asked. What could we take? Um, obviously, the earlier we get funding in the year, the better. But at this stage of the year, we have to look at our spend. And at the end of December, we still had over thirty million pounds to spend. Um, so we're probably even at this stage probably have twenty million pounds to spend, or slightly less. So we look at, need to look at the the capacity of both internally and externally. And internally, our resources have been reduced considerably, you know, following the, the VES, the Voluntary Exit Scheme, um, following, following the Voluntary Exit Scheme. Uh, we lost maybe a third of our design capacity and maybe 15% of our client staff. So certainly our um, capacity to be ahead of the game and to be ready to take late money has been reduced. But, but we are where we are in terms of staff resources and we had a good look at, at it. And no, the, the figure, the 4.5 was what we could take, take in, bear in mind other um, internal, more minor adjustments that needed to be made. The, um, the challenges around um, the workforce, um, is that being addressed internally by the department or has a request been made given the current situation? Well, uh, I think certainly the minister and others are aware that you know that the of the voluntary exit scheme and the outworkings of that, and it's made it more difficult. And we're certainly um, you know looking to do what we can by improving efficiencies. For example, you know things like LED lighting, saves resource funding, which in turn then can be translated into other resource activities, be that staff or be it work on the ground. These things are all um, a balancing act. Uh, um, certainly, while we're trying to be more efficient and generate more resource funding that could be used for staff, that has to be looked against, uh, you know, along with all the other competing demands in terms of the, the functions we try, try to deliver. Okay. And could you outline what impact COVID has had on the delivery of um, or to be able to carry on um, the works that you currently do? Particularly around the workforce. Uh, the, the, I suppose the difficulties were more early in the year. You know, as we as we adjusted to COVID and and you know decided what were essential services and put in place safe working practices. Uh, I think these are well established at this stage. So um, you, you know, our delivery at this stage in terms of our rate is is fine. It was just we were slow getting started till till we. Um, got those new working uh, practices in place. Okay, and, and just finally, just a, a question. Obviously, um, across all our constituencies, we're more than aware of the um, the issues around potholes and the need for um, uh, resurfacing. Um, but I would sort of draw your attention to maybe the quality of that work that's being done, um, because I know that in my own area, um, it's uh, obviously people are. are uh, work um, forces going out to complete the job, but within a very short period of time, that's then um, disintegrating again. So, I'm just conscious about whether or not there has been a change in practice or a change in, in the quality of uh, material that's being used. 
Uh, no, not no. There hasn't been a change in the quality. There, uh, there may be, without knowing the detail of the the, uh, the examples you refer to, and I'm happy to have a look at any individual examples. There are certainly in some cases where, depending on the the defect that's reported, that we may go out and do a temporary repair, with the intention being that we come back and do a, a more permanent one after that. Um, so it could be that. Um, I tell that as there's no change in material, but as I happy to have a look at any individual um, examples that are uh, maybe given. Okay, um, Mr. Buchanan. Okay, thank you, Chair. Uh, thank you, Connor and Joe. I have a couple of questions. Start off probably with the salting and <clears throat> gritting stuff. Connor or Joe, what's the difference between a full salting action and a callout? Is or is there any difference between those two terminologies? Um, no, the, the you know the, the call out staff are on call um, during the winter season. There's 300 staff on at night. Um, a full grading action is probably when we do all all roads. Now it may be depending on on the weather and how localised it may be that there could be partial actions that it may be that we have to do high ground or it could be in the west or it could be in the east. You know, so we don't do everything all the time, but. Uh, but in terms of on call or call outs and and uh, full actions are broadly the same thing. So if a full a full, uh, full action or full salting action would be the eighty thousand pounds per night then effectively is that what we're saying, kind of the, the entire road yeah. network or not yes, all that, the roads, but the, net, the network yeah, would be better. That, that would be the the full the full hundred and nine routes, yeah. And Another point on, on grit. When, when do you define the end of the winter season or service? And I know that's difficult to, pre to predict when, but what, when do you draw a line to say that is the end of the winter service? Whenever the last gritting action took place or any gritting format? It, it, it is, we obviously react to the weather conditions. It's usually about April. It's usually about the middle of April that we start to, you know, to stand staff down. Uh, but obviously we, we look at our forecast and look at what's coming over the horizon at us and react accordingly. And uh, on, you mentioned there in the, in the paper about farmers. Do you does the farmers get any financial support for doing that whenever they are called upon? Yeah, yes, they would. The farmers would be called in extreme weather events, really, to help out with snow clearance. And, and yeah, yeah, yes, they do get get paid for what they do. They get a financial contribution. Okay. And um, yeah. just want to move on to roads maintenance briefly. And, and the chair touched on it. Uh, the definition of temporary repair, as I would call it, stub patching. I'm sure you're aware of that term. Is that, is that cost-effective stub patching to do a temporary repair and then having to come back and do it again? I appreciate you can do more stub patching or temporary repairs in a day than you would permanent repairs, but is that cost-effective based against the amount of money every year you're, you're paying out in damage to vehicles? Uh, no, it certainly wouldn't be the preferred uh, option, but I would say that temporary repairs would be to address an immediate um, safety. Uh, defect, something that's likely that you know it could damage a vehicle or or any road user. Um, so it's not something that we would be doing a standard. It would be to address uh, immediate safety issue. And what's the difference, Connor, in regard to timeline to do a temp? And I know it's a broad question to do a, a, a temporary repair on a pothole of a size or a permanent repair on that same pothole. Is it is it half the time, a quarter of the time, and cost analysis based? You know, considering you have to come back to that pothole. Yeah, well, uh, there'd be no there'd be no set times, which are you know a lot of what we do is dictated by the workload at a given time. So 
you know, after the ice frozen ice is very sore in the roads, as you will know. So after that, that can generate a lot of, of potholes. So it really all depends on what the the workload is at a, at a given time. We get back as soon as we can, but um, as it depends on what needs to be done at a given time. And final question then on grass cutting going forward this year, um, obviously this summer, this growing season, is that at this stage going to be done twice? Well, the, the, the grass cutting for, uh, will really be a decision around next year's budget and obviously there's discussions were early days for that. We'll have to see what the budgets are and uh, the Minister will need to make decisions about what, what we do in all routine maintenance functions, including grass cutting, winter service. Yeah, all the range of routine maintenance functions. So at this minute in time, we're not sure what it will be. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Chair. Hey, um, Deputy Chair, Mr. Hilditch. Thanks, Chair. Uh, you're very welcome this morning, gentlemen. Uh, just wh where are we with the, the winter in general at the minute? Are, you, are we looking at an average uh, winter? Has recent times put us slightly up on what's expected? Or where are we with winter at the minute? Yeah, I think we've we've fifty seven actions this year, and we on average is I think it's sixty or seventy eight odd actions that's in the notes there. So we're really looking at something uh, similar to last year. We're probably looking at a seven to eight million output for this year. So you, you weren't too concerned then when the two million was turned down in October monitoring around. No, but it was but that was on the back of us having received the five million. Um, COVID uh, allocations, so that brought us to, to 8 million, but um, we have since reviewed and we think the 8 million will cover us for this year. Okay, thanks. And uh, just something more probably on the capital side of things, the, the, the fleet of uh, vehicles at the minute, what's the process of replacing those? Or is there a need at the minute for many to be replaced or what's your system on that? Yeah, well, we have schedules of the the type of machinery and the, the age profile of that. And then in a given year, there'll be an allocation um, to to up, up, upgrade the fleet in, in greatest need. So again, it's competing for finance in the same way as everything else is. So there's a, an ongoing program of replacement. Okay, thank you. Uh, just on the uh, maintenance side of things, there's one area which I'm getting quite a few things through at us at the minute in the rural areas in relation to drainage, which has basically disappeared over a number of years. And there's been two examples recently whereby drains have been located five feet, or sorry, uh, five feet down, covered over, had to dig to get them out. And long gone are the days. I'm sure I'm probably one of the older ones here. Where in the rural areas, you've seen a wee man with a spade and a wheelbarrow trotting about the road, <laughs> clearing all those. Uh, it's all very well seeing the big suction machines clearing the gratings in the urban areas. But I think there is going to be a problem heading forward in relation to, to rural uh, drainage, where rivers come down out on the roads and water planning and various things like that. And just the recent experiences have shown that there's been a real lack of maintenance and drains are virtually hidden now due, due to lack of maintenance. Basically. Yeah, well, certainly that's something that we'd be, be expecting our inspectors to pick up. You know, if there's a, a an outlet blocked or not functioning, then obviously water would pond at that location. So we'd be expecting that to be picked up and uh, the, the, the open and cleared. Yeah. 
On that, I have to pay tribute to the, the, the local uh, section engineers in the Mid and East Antrim area and, and thanks England for their attendance and their uh, diligence in getting those things fixed. Just in closing, I would also acknowledge and thank your staff who go out in the lateness of night and early hours of the morning to uh, do the roads during the, the winter season and, and the dangers they face. And I'd just like to thank them for that. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Ms. Um, Kimmins. Sorry, thanks, Chair, and, and thanks, Connor. And it's, it's probably very difficult there with that feedback. So appreciate you um, powering on through. Um, just in, in terms of um, moving money around internally, I know that um, that you said that they were able to move money around internally rather than, than bidding for structural maintenance. Um, it's just to kind of see if we could get a comparison in terms of last year um, in January time, what what the monitoring round situation was um, if you were able to move money around then. Um, because I think I think it was last year it was around eleven million I think for structural maintenance in January monitor and just if you could comment on that in comparison to this year. Um, I certainly am not. I don't have the figures to hand um, from memory. And I could be wrong on this. Was that we got from money earlier last year, and that helps us plan. Um, so, would you have any knowledge of what? I think that last, last, year's, last year's monitoring round in January was fairly low um, for structural maintenance. It might have been less than a million pounds. And the reason for that was, Connor, because we had exceptional high bids, which were successful in September and October. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, that sort of aligns with my sense of it was that we got, if we get the money earlier, then we're. A better place to try and, and do something with it. It's it's a lot more difficult, obviously, come January. Yeah. Okay. And see, in terms of of the funds that um this year that you said that have been moved around internally, are you able to say where those came, where those additional funds from other areas came from in the department? Uh, no, I don't hold that information. That uh, you know, there are obviously the, our central finance team looks at it right across the the department, which includes. Um, you know, DVA. It includes all our functions, um, and they do do the the look at it you know, across the piece, and are able to tell us uh, can they could they accommodate our needs in terms of the additional four point five. But where that exactly came from, I wouldn't be aware. Okay, um, just I suppose I know you said in terms of capacity um, that that they weren't able to take on additional work, and that's. You've, you've outlined there to the chair that it's more um, an internal matter in terms of, of the department staff rather than um, the construction industry. Am I right in, in saying that? Yeah, it's a bit of both. Um, certainly, it's you know to get schemes out the door, it's not you know you, you don't move straight from getting money. You know, schemes need a level of design. You need to contact utilities, see if anybody any other plans. Um, you know, so that's it's there's a bit of work for, for every scheme, um, some more complex than others, but it does, does take a bit of time. Uh, and certainly, our capacity to design and get ahead of the game earlier in the year is reduced due to you know, reduced staff numbers over the years. But I'm reasonably confident that the industry will have uh, uh, enough to keep them going between now and the end of the year. 
Yeah, and I suppose on that on that note, Connor, um, if structural maintenance spend was less than the previous years due to the capacity issues, should the department not have had schemes ready uh, that initially were identified for this year before COVID hit? Yes, well, you know, our, our, I'm slipping for the figures here. You, you know that last, this last two years were 109 and 106, I think, with the figures for the last two years, and this year we're looking at a, a 97 at this minute in time, and there may be more minor chuckles. Um, so, so what I'm thinking is that you know, given the difficulties we had early in the year, I think it's a it's it's a good it's a good outturn. You, you know, I think it reflects well in the, the staff involved. Um, and yes, we would like to have, have schemes on sitting on the shelf and ready to go. But as I say, with the, our design capacity, we've lost a third of our design team you know, since VES uh, or at VES, and uh, that does limit our capacity. Okay. Just in terms of, of Winter Britain, um, has there been any additional bids made to increase the grit stock or the resources for the winter service? I know, um, and I'm sure lots of other members are in the same both that I've had loads of requests for additional grit and bins for extending the grit and schedule. And I'm thinking, could we, could we not have put in a bid to, to maybe better prepare for roads for the future, even um, where there's potentially underspend in other areas? Oh, well, uh, I suppose uh, a fundamental issue here is that winter services resource funding, whereas the, 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 the 75 million that's and but there's now 83.8. That's all capital, so it's it's from a different pot, if you like. But in general, listen, we would love to be doing more on on winter service, but clearly there are financial implications around that. Uh, and certainly, you know, this year the uh, department was was reliant on in-year funding to get its uh, winter service to get to the, the the service that we provide at the minute to allow us to do that. So being mindful of that, you know, there's. There's a whole, there's a, a whole lot of requests coming in across a whole, whole range of areas, and we understand that, and, uh, and, and understand why people would like to, to do more. But it really comes down to resources, because winter service is competing with all these other functions that we carry out, all of which have been reduced over the last five years. You know, grass cutting, um, gully emptying, all of those—they're all competing for the same limited resource. Well, I suppose, and just to, um, and a final point then on that. Um, I suppose the department treats about twenty eight percent of the roads on the primary network, which carries eighty percent of the traffic. And I and I completely understand what you're saying around funding restraints and resources. Um, but is the department then looking at, at ways to improve the delivery of the service? Like for example, maybe working along with DERA or, or, or other departments to try and, and extend the service or, or improve it for the future. Particularly when we see the weather we have on the forecast, you know, in the weeks and months ahead. Yeah, no. It, well, the difficulty is it's, it keeps coming back to to a funding issue. You know, if there was more funding available um, on the resource side, yes, we could do that. Um, but that you know, it really depends on what the the funding is. You know, for the year uh, and in terms of what happens in future years, is we'll have to see what you know emerges in terms of our budget for next year and uh, certainly uh, you know the minister will have to consider all the issues and all the all the demands and decide allocations accordingly but if we do more it ultimately costs more and then that's you know if we ended up with the same money next year this year then that becomes at the expense of something else we'll spend to balance all these uh, needs no thank you and i suppose well it, it, you know i certainly think it would be worth looking i don't know whether it's a possibility but in terms of like rural roads are probably the worst impacted when it comes to the bad weather 
um, and, and trying to get in and out of rural communities for essential journeys, people getting to work and, and, and all of that. Um, so I don't know whether it's a possibility to to engage with DERA on some of that stuff to see if there's a way of, of improving this um, in longer term. But no, thank you, Connor. Thanks, Chair. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, Ms. Anderson. Um, thank you, Chair. And uh, thank you, Connor. I know it was a difficult presentation in terms of for us to pick up everything. So forgive me if I asked you something that you've already responded to, but it was hard to uh, to capture that. Um, can I go back to what Liz was saying about the winter service and pick up on the issue of gridding um, in terms of the roads? Now, I know that there are salt piles or, or grit piles provided on a self-help basis for secondary roads. And those roads um, that we have got this sort of the percentage of some of those roads, uh, which is a lion's share of roads um, that are dealt with in that way. Now, there are a number of estates uh, in Derry, I'm sure there's the same across the north, where you have a cohort of an aging population and they receive domiciliary care, carers needing access, safe passage in uh, to vulnerable people early morning and sometimes late at night. I have already wrote to the minister about Kingsford in Derry, but um, they don't have any personnel, for instance, within the estate to spread the salt early morning when carers are entering and even nights when they're leaving. Uh, nor do they qualify, as the minister has told me, um, as a main road and uh, because they don't have the volume of traffic. So what I'm asking you in the spirit of Build Back Better, can you consider engaging with the Department of Health, for instance, for a pilot project, and I'm thinking of obviously Kingsford and Derry, uh, Gritton schedule um, at Arden Sheik Resident, given that it doesn't fit into the criteria, but would you engage with the health department officials just to devise a pilot somewhere, whether it would be in Kingsford or not? And uh, some of those areas that have an aging population in need, almost on the same basis as you depend on farmers, and rightly so, I'm glad to hear that they get some compensation for, for the assistance that they give in the rural areas. But we could we could have failed of the voluntary community sector or someone because whilst it's on, you know, a self-help self uh, help basis, uh, when you don't have someone in the estate to be able to help, then we're going to have to find a way of trying to salt the kind of areas like that that have an aging population need carers to come in and it's dangerous than coming in in the mornings uh, for instance primarily when the wind has not been salted or they haven't been able to use the salt box and they, they do enough we can't expect them to get out of the cars and do that as well as everything else that they do um, could i ask i don't know the development but are there are there salt bins in the development they're salt bins you know. in the development, but they're done on a self-help basis. So when you can't, if you're an agent, you know, if, you're, if you have an agent population and you have nobody out uh, able uh, to actually spread it because they're not fit, they're elderly, they're getting actually domiciliary care help. There's in states, for instance, where a lot of the cares would be going in to help an aging population, a vulnerable population. So I'm trying to find the mechanism, just given that it doesn't fit into your criteria. I'm trying to find a mechanism through which a pilot could be done on a needs basis. I'm not saying across the north because I know you wouldn't have the resources to do that. But where you have a population with identified need that do not have the support within that cohort of a state to spread the salt, that we have failed, for instance, of the voluntary and community sector to go in and help spread it. 
at the times when it is required in the same basis, in the same way as we do, say, farmers in rural areas. Yeah, uh, certainly, you know, because I'm aware in other areas that, you know, you know that local community representatives go in and, and help out in certain estates where, where people may not be fit but to, to do it themselves, because it really only needs, you know, one or two, you know, volunteers or, or community reps, you know, to, to help out there. You know, I appreciate it's a difficult area and, you know, it's, it's across a whole range of housing estates. Happy to have a look at it to see, if, you know, is there some way that, you know, we can speak to the elected representatives locally, you know, to see, um, make someone be able to assist there, um, some community group might be able to help out there, particularly if the, if the salt is there, then it becomes really a spreading issue. Yeah, well, I think if we could do that in a systematic way, so there's no areas being left out, no area that needs, for instance, people to come in to help them that, can, that are worried about driving into the area because of the state of the road. So I think if you could take on to do something like that, I'd appreciate that. Could I ask you in relation to the voluntary exit scheme a number of years ago uh, within the civil service and what kind of upskilling of staff within the department took place as a consequence of the, I think it was two or 300 that we were told at one stage, uh, left and the road service so that we didn't have a lack of capacity. So once those people, they had an offer, they took on the voluntary exit scheme, but so that we didn't have a gap in capacity, what happened within the department to fill that gap? Uh, well, the, the numbers, you know, I think we've had to accept that we don't have the capacity that we had before. Um, and there's no easy way to fill that gap again without um, taking staff back on again. Now, we have some capacity in terms of external con consultants that we, we in can engage those, and that goes some way towards addressing the gap, but it's certainly um, we're a long way down from what we were pre-voluntary exit. Has there been an assessment done of the cost of external consultants and the pay that's given, for instance, um, to external consultants in, and in comparison to a staff member being either employed or someone within the civil service being skilled up um, within your own department to fill that role? It's certainly not an exercise, exercise I've carried out, um, and but certainly we would engage in more on the engineering side um, you know, you, you really, it's more difficult to engage um, external consultants to deal with the client role, but certainly there's capacity on the design side and, and you know, we use that as best as we can, again, within the funding available. Well, maybe that's something, Chair, that we will refer to because I have noticed in a number of meetings that there's a lot of consent, external consultants attending those meetings, and I have found that somewhat strange. So maybe that is probably because there's a gap, an understandable gap that was created, and if it hasn't been fulfilled, uh, then we should go back just to do an extrapolation of the cost of that. So we'll come back to that perhaps as a committee. I'll talk to the Chair and the members about that. Can I ask you, I don't know if it's within your remit, around uh, just lastly about unadopted roads. It's a massive area across uh, across the north. It's a massive issue. It's a massive issue in the constituency that I represent in Derry. There are 222 roads unadopted in the council area of Derry and Straban, and there's something like 12.5 million in bonds sitting. So many of those roads, in terms of because they're not adopted, 
Therefore, they can't even get their bins emptied, let alone um, salt boxes put in because they're not adopted. And people are living in these estates for many, many years. So is that something that your department has been looking at, particularly around Article 11 and the enforcement action uh, by the department being taken because of the states of the roads in relation to the bonds issue? Uh, yes, it's something that we um, deal with all the time. We do have our private streets teams, um, but ultimately it's a matter for developers to, to finish development, and it's obviously far better if the developer, um, you know, does them of their own initiative, and obviously we'll liaise with them to, to encourage them to do that. Rather, you know, that's far better than going down any legal route. Obviously, um, if it gets to a point that we may have to go down the Article 11 route, but again, that's very resource intensive. And as you pointed out, there's an awful lot of sites, um, you know, right across the province. Um, so, uh, you know, so we do have to prioritise what we do in that particular area. Well, given the number of sites that you have right across the north, um, can you give us a sense as to is there a time frame? Of course, we would want developers to respond responsibly and to not allow this to continue on. But Woodside Heights, Woodside Muse, for instance, I'm just talking about an estate in the waterside. This has gone on 10 years and we're still at the point of still trying to get the roads adopted, the sewage accepted. And um, we're still dealing with the developer in relation to that. So surely there should be a cutoff point. Um, rather than developers leaving the states after many, many families have taken out mortgages of hundreds of thousands, uh, hoping that they were going into a state that wouldn't actually end up wrecking their car or they would have out of sewage problems. So is there a time frame? I, I know you don't want to uh, trigger Article 11 if you don't have to, but in terms of an enforcement action after a period of time, one year, two years, three years maybe, but certainly not 10 years, so in this situation, uh, given that this is a problem, it's a systematic problem now that you're identifying across the north. So there's a trend and a pattern here and we need to try and address it. So what is the department, what kind of serious consideration is given to this rather than then allowing developers go in and do the same thing in another state and end up with the same problems? Yeah. I certainly I think things have improved in recent years as you know as the housing market has improved. Certainly went through a very difficult time when there was a lot of um, you know the, the time the, the property market crashed and, and a lot of developers struggled with that. But I think we're better now in that there are people buying development and, and, and finishing them off. And, and yes, we do have a prioritizing system and the time is in there, number of properties built. Um, you, you know, and occupied within the development, they all feature in the, uh, in how we prioritise any works. Have a look at Woodfield Heights. Um, it's it's Woodside, Woodland Heights, Woodside News. There's a number of estates within the, within that waterside area, and it's been going on for ten years. We still have the developers in as we speak, trying to deal with these new sewage and roads, and we're trying to get them adopted. And this is going on now ten years, and families, as you can imagine, after spending ten years of mortgages repayment, and they're still dealing with sewage problems. They're still dealing with roads unadopted, and uh, and at this stage, they are very angry, understandable they so because this is not what they when they were purchasing these houses that they expected to be dealing with a decade later but that's only one area like I said 222 of the council areas and they're 
12.5 million. There's actually over 12.5 million of road bonds. So, Chair, I think this is an issue that all of us are experiencing across the North. And I think it might be something that we would need more information about. And it's worth, as a committee, us returning to this and having maybe a dedicated focus on this uh, at some time in the near future. Thank you, Connor. Okay, moving then to Mr. Muir. Thank you very much, Chair, and thank you for the officials. Uh, for joining us uh, today. Um, some of the questions I have uh, have already been asked, and particularly around the whole uh, resourcing issue, um, and just sort of related to that, um, in the January monitoring round, the report we got at the beginning of January as a committee, it's, uh, it detailed that £1 million was being uh, returned because of reduced capacity to deliver work on the ground uh, whilst maintaining safe working conditions during the COVID outbreak. Uh, if you could just provide a bit more information in relation to that, it's obviously a concern to see any money being returned. Uh, and the other ones uh, in relation to sort of maintenance works, it says that gullies will be cleared at least once a year. Is that all gullies? And was there ever uh, an increased uh, uh, frequency in terms of the clearing of gullies? Uh, yeah, well, I'll start with, maybe your, with your second question. Yes, then when we had more funding, we used to do we used to do gullies twice, that had to be cut to one as part of the limited service. And yes, the plan would be to, to, to do all gullies in a, in a year. Um, in terms of the, the one million return, I think it was a, that was returned by the department to reflect yeah. the department's wider position. But in terms of structural maintenance, you know, we increased our, our intake in January uh, by 4.5 million. So, uh, uh, as the one was the wider departmental position, but structural maintenance actually increased. Okay, so in terms of the the requirement to maintain safe working conditions as a result of COVID, is that something that's been impacted upon structural maintenance, or is there, or is the things managed to be able to proceed? No, no, it, it's okay now, but it meant that for the first couple of months of the year, it took us a while to uh, adjust to that and to you know agree what was emergency works. And to get safe working practices in place, um, you know that both internally and within the industry. So we had a slower start to this year, if you like, but uh, we're now working as as well as we can, you know, under the new arrangements. Sure, thank you. So just in relation to the gullies, going back to that, uh, I've seen many instances locally where there's heavy rainfall has resulted in with gullies being blocked in local areas, uh, localized fl flooding and ponding. Um, Surely this is something that needs to be re-examined in terms of that frequency of the clearing of gullies, because that has a potential impact upon nearby businesses and local homes in terms of flooding around that, um, as a result of the gullies not being cleared. Yeah, well, certainly if there are, you know, hotspots, what we'll call them, you know, higher risk areas, we're happy, you know, that both can and should get more treatment if the local section office is aware, aware of them, but a more general um, increase in frequency will have obviously funding issues but listen if there are if there are local issues local hotspots i would agree with you that those should be uh, you know addressed uh, in any flooding situation those they, they need uh, more treatment okay so if, those are uh, if those areas are identified are they do they get uh, visited twice a year then or well it depends 
And, uh, you know, it, it's, it, they certainly kept an eye on, and, you know, and whether it's a flooding event, you know, any hotspots, um, you know, they should certainly be, be looked at uh, and those gullies cleared. Yeah. Just to alert. They should certainly get more treatment than, than the one per year. Yeah. Just to alert, in relation to the, the roads maintenance, the structural maintenance, and issues that are reported through to yourselves, is there KPIs in place in terms of turning around those uh, requests? For, uh, because many residents are very frustrated that they report things and it's still years down the line and nothing's been done. I just wanted to know if there's a framework in place for prioritisation and for timelines to get things done. Is this um, defects reported through the, the, the public portal? Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. No, it's because you know we have a, a systematic inspection and repair regime in place that we adhere to. So, you know, so when people pick, pick up defects, it may well be that, that they're picked up and repaired on the next cycle of inspection and repair, because it's very inefficient for us to be asking our contractors you know, you know, to work outside of a sector basis, you know, the, to go, they spend more time on their own than, than they would actually repairing. So it's good to stay in a particular area and do everything they say that they move to the next area, etc. Obviously, if they're significant enough to be uh, a more immediate repair needed, then we we will do that. It may be a temporary repair, you know, that was mentioned earlier. Um, so it's just because something is reported on PEP doesn't necessarily mean it has a, a, an increased repair time. You know, it makes us aware of it. And depending on the, the, the nature and size of the defect, we'll act accordingly. Yeah. It would be useful if people are reporting those things online that they get feedback in terms of, you know, this is how it's been categorized, this is where it's going to be dealt with, because unfortunately some of the reports are made, they get a reference number and then it disappears into the ether and they don't hear anything more. So they're not sure whether it's going to be prioritized, you know, is it like way down the list or is it something that's likely to be done, as you said, in the next schedule of works. So it'd be good to have a way to be able to feed back to people um, you know, what the story is in relation to that, because they are going online in good faith to report them and then they're, just, they're not hearing anything more, you know. You know, well, I thought, you know, believe what should be if, if our position is that we're going to pick it up in the next cycle. I thought people were being advised of that. Now, there may be a time lag between when they report it and that is actually uploaded to the system. Yeah. But that's certainly the response that I understood. Yeah, I think there's need to, because I've reported a lot of stuff myself and you just don't hear anything back. Um, and the only thing you hear back is if residents come to you and say this still hasn't been done. And then you're like, well, I'll chase that again. Uh, just one last thing, and I would agree with the comments from other members around thanks for the work that's done in terms of the winter service. Uh, while many of us are in bed, there's uh, workers out there um, you know, gritting roads and clearing snow and stuff like that, and we really appreciate that. Um, one of the issues is, is around uh, primary schools. Now, obviously, primary schools are only open at the moment for uh, key workers, and obviously, special schools are open uh, uh, th th uh, throughout this latest lockdown, and we're very much appreciative of that. But the rural roads that link um, those primary schools onto main roads, that they're not always gridded, and has there been any consideration given to ensuring that those rural roads that link onto to primary schools onto the main net road network are gridded? And I know in your report you outlined that there's a, a certain number, but it's not everyone, and there's a number of schools that have sort of been in contact, just concerned that they that there's, there's no gridding to enable people to safely get to the school and back from it. 
Yeah, you know, certainly that what we've agreed is that there's secondary written to a number of schools, and what you know really qualifies that school is that if the school you know has to close for days in terms of uh, you know due to severe weather events or you know a slow event has closed the school. That's really what what um, has been happening with those schools that are that are on the list. Um, certainly, you know, again, I could understand. You know, I'm sure there's hundreds of rural schools, and the ones I know local to me is there. People are served by a, a number of roads, in, you know, coming from from different directions. So it's very hard to to cover all the roads in the vicinity of, of a school. Um, you know, so again, we're looking at uh, at, at salt bins in the vicinity of the school and grid piles on the roads is is as much as really do at the minute. Is there any criteria, just lastly, because I know other members have questions, in terms of the number of days that that school has to close in recent times because of adverse weather? Is there a criteria in place which then triggers that they actually get that salting? I just uh, I don't have it to hand. I would need to just double check with the policy. It's, it's certainly mentioned in the policy how specific it is. I just couldn't say off the top of my head, but I would need to have a look at that. If you usefully get that, it would be appreciated. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chair. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Boylan. Thank you, Chair. Um, to put on record, Chair, whilst we're all lying in bed, my brother and my, my nephew's out gritting the roads there, keeping us all safe. Just want to put that on record. Just want to go back, Connor, because, um, and Joe, you're very welcome. Unfortunately, we missed an opportunity here because there was funds available. The Minister stated, the Finance Minister stated this over the last number of months unfortunately i think we missed a, a great opportunity you know to do carry out some of the work but i want to just tease it out further but man and some of the questions have been asked that unfortunately connor that some of the presentation was bouncing back and forward they got some detail but but thanks very much for the presentation just just want to start with the january monitor around last year because you said you bid for 11 million and didn't get it and just taking clarity on that and what was the difference this year? Because you're saying you, there was money moved in around the department this year as opposed to last year. What exactly was the difference in terms of the, the total January monitoring situation last year and this year? Could you elaborate a wee bit on that, please? Yeah. Um, I don't have the, the, the figures for, for last year. I'm just, I don't have them to hand. Um, but I think our sense is that, that there was very, that, that any additional money got last year was earlier in the year that it didn't come in January monitoring, but I don't have exact figures to hand. Um, and you know, the department does that every year. It will look at its easements and pressures across all its functions and decide accordingly where where funding should sit. And it's no different this year. Um, so while we indicated that we had a capacity to do more, that was able to be managed internally. But but there was eleven million bid right across the board in terms of structures and maintenance. Is that right? Right across the monitoring range. Last year, this yeah. year. What, what last year? Yeah. Um. But, but the main the main point is that we bid for money, so obviously we're dealing with the capacity here, Connor. So what I want you, I want you to step through it, um, and maybe you'll come back to the, the the committee with some figures in in terms of what you bid last year and what the bids were this year and what the and what you've spent in, in relation to structural maintenance in relation to those bids right across the monitoring rounds. But I, I want to go I want to go um, down the route of the capacity issue because clearly, and others have mentioned the, the voluntary scheme, exit scheme. I mean, clearly we haven't built up that capacity back again. So 
my question is, can you step through for the committee's point and from your own point, uh, the delivery from design right through to work on the ground exactly what that entails just for the benefit of the committee so we get a better understanding of, of the lack of capacity in terms of design, in terms of delivery? Yeah, yeah it's uh, okay. Well, it's d d different, it's most dependent where it is, but if you look at an urban scheme, for example, you know, you need to go and survey the site, you need to check where all the utilities are, you need to liaise with them to see if they any works planned for the area. Then we need to design the scheme. You know, we need to look as just we need to be is there anything that can be done on the active travel front uh, within you know within urban schemes or other schemes. You know, so it has to be looked at across a range of parameters and a design done, and then depending on the scale of the scheme, you know, hopefully if it, if it was within a measured term range, we can give it to the contractor. But the contractor then has to do you know, they will have other schemes that we're looking them to do as well. So it's it's a combination of internal and external, but but there's a whole range of design. No, no, and, I, and I appreciate no, I appreciate that. I'm just I'm asking it in the context of because clearly we haven't. Um, and Martina alluded there earlier about the capacity issue. Clearly, we haven't recovered those positions because if we had, we'd be able to deliver more. Is that is that a fair assumption? No. No, it, it, it certainly is. You know, the the loss of staff from uh, from that has certainly taken a toll and reduced our capacity to to have schemes designed and and ready to go, uh, and that's particularly obvious at at the end of a financial year, yeah. where our capacity is reduced. Because I mean, you know yourself. I mean, and on all the elected reps, the same and councillors, especially at this time of year, they all talk about shovel ready projects and being able to spend money. We deal with contractors, and now all of a sudden, maybe I don't need to look at last year, but certainly this year, because of COVID and everything else, there's a number or other factors that these things haven't carried out. But but I just want to go back because I mean, I have been talking to contractors on the ground, Connor. I mean, some you, you alluded there, there may be an issue for contractors. I mean, some of them are saying to me, if they had got the money, they'd be able to spend it. Um, would you like to? Elaborate a wee bit on that. What exactly were the issue with, with contractors on the ground? Well, uh, the uh, from where I am, I believe that we will have enough work for contractors. You know, between the end of the year, and if certainly if some of them think they have a capacity, um, we would certainly quite happy to to talk to them about what's on their books and what's on their program between now and the end of the year. But obviously, as you say, a scheme needs to be shown already before we can give it to the contractor. So. You know, so the design bit, I suppose, is the, you know, possibly the the, the more difficult bit. No, I appreciate that, but but it seems to me, I mean, the the voluntary exit scheme was what three, four years. How long is that now? Many years. Five, six years. Five or six right. years ago. I, I mean, we, we haven't regained we haven't regained that capacity because even talking to some of the, some of the local contractors, it seems the relationship between yourselves. And them have changed in terms of how how they would have delivered projects, and clearly that's the capacity. Because I mean, you, you would have went back a number of years ago and said whatever whatever they can achieve in terms of million pounds of work or whatever that was. Has has that relationship changed because of the capacity issues? Yeah. No, no, without a doubt. If we had more schemes that we were in a position to get more schemes out the door, then certainly you know contractors you know, maybe then be asked to react to that and and possibly deliver more. But 
it's you know we can only do what we can do within the resources available. No, no, I appreciate that. My, my colleague uh, Bertina Anderson has asked the, the committee to look at the capacity issue and go back to the department. Just a final question, uh, Connor, in terms of the winter stuff. See, in terms of surely the likes of the potholes and some of the stretches of roads that can be done under the, under the rural maintenance grant, um, surely they can be carried out. I mean, there shouldn't be much problems in, in delivering those. I mean, those are simple and, enough. And the, the, the rural road schemes? Yeah. Yeah, you know, no, they're certainly easier to deliver than an urban scheme. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, so it all comes down then uh, to the uh, totality of the work charges that we have with contractors. You know, to say that we were, are, you know, come the, we don't have our end of January figures through yet, but our end of December figures, we had over thirty million pounds still to spend. So you know, there's there's a lot of work out there in order that, that we need our contractors to do. So that's where I'm coming from, and and when I think that you know that they. Have, have enough to stick them uh, through, you know, to the end of the year. But certainly happy to have a discussion with any of them that think they may not. So no, and I, like I said, you, you go back. If you look at every Facebook post, there's a potholder. There's a there's a some kind of you know someone say crater on the road. But but you're you're saying you're happy to work with. You think you'll achieve a good fair bit of that work over over the next coming months before the end of financial mm-hmm. year. Yeah, okay. if, it's on, if it's on the programme for this year, certainly we are expecting to deliver it, yeah. No. Okay, Chair, I'm happy enough. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Connor. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Mr. Beggs. Sorry, Roy, we can't hear you. You may still be on mute. Can't hear you. Does he hear us? Why can you hear us? No, I don't think so. Nothing. I don't seem to be a reaction there at all. No. It, it seems it to be on your just, end. Yeah. I say it's his audio and video settings. Because he maybe turned off his mic. Yeah, has your mic been switched off? Or his volume might be down. Okay, well, would you like to email your um, questions through to. Um, Alison, we can see if we can get this sorted out in the meantime. Um, Mr. Hilditch. Thanks, Chair. Just a, a couple of ones coming back on. Uh, the relationship with councils, local councils, during the winter period and gritting, is there any uh, policy in place to work together, or is it just on a hot hot basis, considering that there's a lot of sort of footways and city or town centres and city centres that require uh, winter service? Yeah, we have arrangements in place with councils, but really that sort of kicks in when there's prolonged snow events typically. You know, it's more, you know, clearing slow snow in town and city centres is what that would be linked to. Um, thinking being that obviously 
it, it limits you know if in such an event um operators are limited in what they can do in terms of what, what they should normally be doing and it's agreed that that resource can should be diverted to to help with uh clearing of snow in town and city centers and would you provide them with the and that arrangements in place with all councils yeah did you do supply the grip to the councils for those times um yes we, yes we, yes we do and um, it was one of the difficulties with uh, you know the group that we supply um the town and city centers aren't dying about it in terms of the color of it you know, you know the town and city centers would tend to want white salt which is not something that we use our salt is the is the brown salt that goes in the roads you know so it's uh, it's what we have isn't isn't perfect for uh for 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 the, the doesn't meet the needs and the expectations of the public so in some cases you know councils are providing salt themselves and um, white salt and um, but it, it's it's a you know it's the air salt is there available to them if they wish to use it okay thank you and just in a couple of the annual operations there on grass cutting and weed spraying i know they were cut back previously as well but and that would be one of the areas where you would get constituents making comment about what they would term maybe the poor service in that front. Uh, how is it going currently? Is it still just is it one or two cuts or sprays a year? Or? It's the well, it's the normal. It's the it's the two. It was two. We're down to two cuts, but, but that had been five previously. You know, that's in the year that has gone that we're finishing. Where it is next year remains to be seen because that will depend on budgets for next year. And uh, what they look like, and uh, the minister obviously will have some key decisions to make around the the, the service next year. So, in, in terms of next year's grass cutting, we're just not sure at this minute in time. We'll have to see what comes out of the budget discussions. Yeah, gone are the days when residents would have went out and put the spade along the curb and taken out the weeds themselves. But <laughs> we're such a needy people these days. So, thank you. I don't think Mr. Beggs seems to have disappeared. Dropped off. Yeah. Trying to get him back in. Mrs. Kelly, would you like to ask a question? No, thanks, Chair. I think everything's uh, been covered. I'm happy enough. Thank you. Okay, thank you, um, Connor and Joe. Can I thank you very much for attending this morning? Obviously, that wasn't the easiest session, just with regards to um, being able to hear you um, at times. Uh, Mr. Beggs obviously had indicated that he wanted to ask some questions. Back, back. Hello. Oh, we can hear oh, you. Hello. Okay. Right. Can I bring you in now? Hello. Actually? Yes, I can hear you. So, sorry about technology and it wasn't working. I was hearing you and watching you, but you obviously weren't able to hear myself. Um, thanks for the background information, Connor. Uh, and can I, from at the start, uh, pass ask you to pass on appreciation of all your. Uh, key staff, essential workers who, who keep our, our, our roads open during uh, winter conditions and indeed carry out uh, emergency repairs. But in terms of the pothole repair standard, um, you've indicated that some roads are being repaired at, with a 20 millimetre fault and uh, the busier roads, but others it needs to be 50 millimetres. Now, two inches is quite a sizable uh, hole. Um, so can you clarify the volume of traffic that is qualifying for the 20 millimetre repair? Yeah. Um, I think it's, off the top of my head, I think it's roads carrying more than 5,000 vehicles per day. Um, Joe, do you know of that, that figure, of that 
Tommy, go ahead. Yes, Conor, that, that, that's correct. High, high traffic is greater than 5,000 um, vehicles a day. Yeah, thanks. The, 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 50 mil, the 50 mil and 20 mil, um, the 50 mil would relate to all roads, including low traffic rural roads. Yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, a two inch, uh, sort of, people can visualize two inches, usually a lot easier than 50 mil. That's quite a size of a hole. And frequently, once a, a pothole gets to that size, there's actually a considerable amount of damage done instead of perhaps a, a lesser earlier repair. Um, have you carried any uh, analysis of um, uh, long-term additional costs by carrying out um, repair at that later stage? No, well, well, certainly the, the service that we had, you know, pre the limited service, I'm going back to 2015 maybe, um, you know, we were repairing 20, as I understand it, on all, on all potholes, but obviously the budget then was probably £20 million greater across routine maintenance functions than it is now. So we would agree with you totally that the earlier we get in, the better, and we would like to be at the 20 mil threshold in all roads, but um, again, it's an affordability issue. But, but my question is, um, is this not costing the public purse more money by uh, repairing at that later stage? Um, no, well, you know, you need to look at the, the volume of claims, uh, you know, not so much the volume of claims, of, of the, the, the financial settlements and claims that come in over a given year um, versus the cost of doing the service, but I don't have those figures to hand. But, but on, on top of that, I mean, the cost to carry out a repair when there's a, a 50 mil pothole, there's probably a bigger area to be dug up uh, and to be repaired rather than perhaps a smaller patch. Uh, has there been any uh, analysis of the maintenance costs in, in following this this uh, 50 mil standard? You know, it's, it's certainly there's no doubt it's better value to get, get in earlier, but it's you know it's a numbers game. You, you know, if the, the numbers of potholes are in the 20 to 50 range. You know, there's yeah. certainly some of those will lead to claims, etc. But it's just we're not funded to do all of those as much as we. Yeah. Okay. Turning to um, um, resurfacing schemes and certainly uh, um, the, 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 you, you've been getting I think seventy five million earlier on this year, and you could plan accordingly. And you've indicated that there's difficulty uh, in reacting late to to um, uh, put schemes on the ground. Now. Uh, certainly, in, in the private sector, you wouldn't choose to put tarmac, large amounts of tarmac down in cold, wet winter months if you could uh, await um, better weather conditions. So, what assessment has there been on the uh, durability of repairs or resurfacing carried out at this time of the year? Admittedly, um, you may not have a choice in some instances, but uh, I'm just trying to seek uh, an assessment of the effectiveness of putting a large amount of tarmac down at this time of the year? Yeah, well, it's, it's certainly better to be doing it in the warmer weather, but there are, you know, rules in terms of laying and a number of 
our schemes have had to be cancelled and delayed in recent weeks because of the frost. So there's certain temperatures below which you know we we won't lay, um, you know, because of that durability issue. So you know, so there are rules for our contractors in terms of what they do and when they apply the material. And it's certainly greater risks at this time of the year with the the the, the colder weather. Um, but we will stop works if it gets too cold to lay the, the material. So what is the critical temperature then? Uh, I don't have it just to, to hand. Uh, it's, I would need to get that checked to see exactly what it is. Okay. In terms then of, of the capacity of the industry, um, it's there is obviously a requirement for capacity of your staff to put schemes in place, but also uh, there is a limited capacity to put uh, a large amount of termite down at any one time. Um, so, so my question is, if you are putting out uh, a lot of schemes at one time of the year, is it, does it all happen at a standard cost, or does do the quotes go up when there's a bottleneck, such as the, the, at this moment in time? No, it's uh, the rates are our pair, our pair, the contracts. Um, but you know, to be fair to contractors, you know, it's very difficult for both us and them to switch on and switch off resource. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, the more linear we get to spend, the better. Um, because if we're scurrying at the end of the year, you know, if we did have schemes designed, then they have to increase their workforce and then it could become April, they're laying them off again, which is not ideal from an industry point of view. So it keeps taking us back to the earlier we have um, yeah, this money in a year, the better, and even longer term budgets is even better again, you know, and that's all come out of Barton and the, the, the audit office reports. So something we aspire to, but we've a bit to go yet. Turning then to the winter rating program, um, very disappointed uh, in, in my own constituency when a request was made to create um, a new spine road, um, Kelly Glen Link, which has some 2,800 vehicles a day, uh, numerous new developments off it, but despite that huge volume of traffic, uh, it was not uh, accepted for, for gritting. So my, my question is, uh, when are other criteria applied to exclude uh, such main roads? Um, it's the, okay, so I don't know the detail around this particular instance. Um, you know, but certainly need to, uh, some don't have to have a look at. Now, I know there's a parallel routes issue in around this, that just because a road carries more than the volume, if there's another... Um, route close by that takes people from A to B this credit, then that's a factor to be considered. But as I don't know the detail around this particular um, location. I mean, I mean, I there are other roads round round the town. I mean, this is in the outskirts of, of Larn Town. Um, but nevertheless, there are hundreds and hundreds of homes that have been built off this route that have no alternative route. Uh, 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 and therefore, they are not being uh, supplied, and so there, they, they, there is a sense of a lack of a quality being applied uh, in not gritting such such routes. Um, so my question is, how, how often is that criteria applied to exclude such major spine roads? Yeah, I'm just not sure. Is there a reason given for not including it? Well, I'm just not aware of the was mentioned, but it, yeah. Okay, it's something that I'm happy to have a look at. I just need to look at the detail of it. Okay, that's fine. Thank you.
Mr. Hilditch, did you? No, no, I'm fine. Thank okay. you. Anyone else? Why we just before we finish up? Okay, so sort of as a take two for a conclusion, Connor, can I thank both you and, and Joe for your attendance this morning? And on behalf of all the committee, can you pass on our thanks to your staff for the work that they have continued to do throughout, not only obviously the COVID period, but also through um, the winter period as well. So we very much appreciate their efforts. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much. Okay, members, um, obviously a number of issues um, arising out of that. Um, I know that Ms Anderson had raised the issue in relation to unadopted roads. Um, there had been a, an inquiry um, from a previous committee of, uh, in DRD at the time, so it might be useful actually if um, committee staff could maybe look back on that, because there were a number of recommendations that may be something that we want to consider, perhaps even um, if that was tabled next, just for, for noting even next week, just for members to have a look at. And maybe we can consider sort of steps um, for a future meeting if, you, if you're willing to look at that. Um, and then obviously there were various questions um, with regards to um, staff uh, and numbers of staff, obviously, as a consequence of the voluntary exit scheme and the use of contractors and the cost of that vis a vis having in house staff. So if we could maybe write to the Minister raising. Um, an issue around that and seeking um, some clarification as to what review is being carried out of the workforce and also the costs associated with um, the use of um, consultants. Does that sort of cover those issues? Um, anyone else? Anything else further they'd like to to ask or seek clarification on? Okay. Sure. Just, Mr. Callan. Just on, on the whole um, financial payouts to you know, people getting damaged in their vehicles. Where does the department see that and you know, what's the balance in that figure? You know, what's, a, what's an acceptable figure every year that they outweigh to say it's okay paying X millions instead of trying to solve those problems and reduce that you know, over the past number of years? You know? Okay. You know, how have they looked at that to try and reduce that figure? Okay. Okay. I understand that, Alison. We get that. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, moving then on to our next briefing, which we've tried to have on a number of occasions. Um, so this is from the Northern Ireland Assembly Research. And uh, we have um, two papers, Water and Sewage Company Business Models in, in GB and the Irish Republic, and Research and Information Service Briefing Paper on Electric Vehicle Waste. Ansard will record um, the meeting. And we welcome um, via Starleaf um, Des McKibben, who is our our researcher. Is is Des online? Yes, he is. Let's get him up into the spot. Hello, good morning. Can you hear me? Hi, Des. Yes. You're very welcome to our meeting. Um, and apologies okay. that you've had to be rescheduled on a number of occasions. No, that's no problem. I'll sure. I understand. Very busy. So um, if you don't mind, sure, I'll just start off with the briefing on the electric vehicle waste, which was uh, based on a question that was asked at the previous um, briefing that I gave on transport decarbonisation. And then I'll move on and speak about the water and sewage company business models after that, if that's okay. Okay. Okay, so it was back at the committee meeting on the 7th of October that uh, members wanted more information on the issues arising from the disposal of electric, electric vehicle batteries. 
Um, the issue here is that the lithium-ion batteries in EV degrade considerably over the first five years and typically last more than 10 years. Therefore, it basically dealing with the, the issue of EV battery waste would be critical for the sustainability of electric vehicles. Um, sending the landfill won't be an option, obviously, and this is already prohibited under um, the Waste Batteries and Accumulators Regulations 2009. Um, batteries need to either be recycled, which involves intensive manufacturing processes, which aren't really up to scratch present. I think currently around only about 10% of materials are retrieved within most processes or else they have to be repurposed for other uses. Um, currently, the UK government is funding a number of um, programs and research initiatives looking at the reuse and recycling of components and similar um, programs are happening at the EU level as well. But the thing is, the University of Birmingham carried out a, a review of all the recycling technologies and basically said that these aren't keeping, these aren't nowhere near keeping pace with the rise of EV and it's really storing up a huge um, waste management problem for the future. Um, there are some pilots taking place looking, looking um, at the reuse of batteries. For example, they can be repurposed for utility-scale energy storage, and this has residential, commercial, and industrial applications. The Amsterdam Arena is a, is a sort of a, a widely used example. It has a system that enables the storage of solar energy, and which can be used in the stadium as news. It also enables the stadium owners to retrieve electricity from the grid during the night when it's cheaper and, and store this to meet the demand when the stadium is use, isn't used. But at, at this stage, these are small scale, um, you know, uh, trials really, and they have no, you know, the wider rollout hasn't been seen yet. That, that's, that's an important issue because the UK, as we know, since, the, since I presented that paper in, um, at the start of October, the UK has brought forwards brought forward its plans to prohibit the sale of petrol and diesel cars to 2030. So clearly the issue of managing the waste from the batteries is present and it's something that needs to be needs, needs to be addressed. And um, that's all really happened out there on that paper if if there are any questions, take them to this, this point. Okay, um, Mr. Muir, on this on is it on this particular um, item or on the other? I have um, Mr. Muir, Mr. Boylan, and Ms. Anderson have all indicated. I was just curious as to whether it's on this particular briefing or on the second one. Mr. Muir. Sorry, Chair. Uh, um, wouldn't let me unmute. So, <laughs> uh, th thank you, Des, for the briefing. I think it's uh, a key issue because there's a lot of focus about encouraging e car usership. Uh, but the real issue of concern I have is in relation to the batteries and the, the usage of those afterwards. Mm -hmm. My understanding at the present moment in time is an awful lot of those batteries, once they're reached the end of life, are being shipped off then to the developing world. Um, is that probably correct? Um, I'm not uh, to the developed, to the under, underdeveloped world, is that what? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, because the, the uh, reports that you know the, the, these stocks are then being sent to to uh, to the developing world, and where there there's issues in terms of how this safely the 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 materials are being managed, um, you know, because there's obviously health risks associated with them as well. Yeah, well, I know there are a number of issues. Just when I spoke briefly there about the recycling processes at present and how they're only able to really retrieve a very small amount of the materials, the obviously the precious metals and stuff that are involved mm -hmm. in the manufacturing and so obviously 
if they're only if they're only retrieving that amount, the waste. What's what's happening to the rest of the battery is clearly an issue. I haven't looked specifically at the development world mm -hmm. um, and what and, and the issues with storage and stuff. But there are there, you know there are issues over fire safety and the risks of storing the batteries and what's left behind after the what materials can retrieve have been retrieved. I know there have been some examples of um, you know more advanced recycling processes. There's a company in Canada that has that has developed processes which are, have enabled it to retrie um, retrieve you know a uh, much higher percentage of the materials you know the precious materials that are involved in the manufacturing of the batteries. But it's really it's an outlier. It's a it goes it's ahead of its time, and I guess it'll take you know um, investment and various other things and government policies to get that sort of technology more widely available. But if you'd like me to look more into the issue, I apologize for having said, no. but you know, the issue of storing it at the, I have read some of the issues obviously around the, the, the manufacturing of the batteries from the start in terms of the developing world and the use of, you know, unethical labor practices and stuff like that there. there so there are issues at both ends, I guess, but um, not specifically on that issue of, um, the storage of the used, you know, the spent batteries in those in those areas. Yeah, because yeah, I just think we have a, a moral and environmental obligation in terms of what we're doing in terms of energy usage uh, yeah. from the very beginning to the very end. And I think it's an important that we take that on day point. Uh, and I think there, there, there's a concern for me is that in terms of the whole issue about electric power and electric vehicle usage, there mm -hmm. needs to be overall um, strategy in relation to that, which encompasses the issues you've outlined. I'm not too sure whether that would form a subset of the energy strategy that's meant to be coming from the Department for the Economy, or whether this is something that's particularly within infrastructure, but maybe that's something for us to consider. Mm -hmm. um, I think certainly, I think certainly it's something like the, the, the report that was conducted by the University of Birmingham 29, which I referred to more in the paper than in the presentation, has looked at it and says that it's a really, it's a massive, massive issue that, is, that isn't to be addressed. And it's really, it's put the onus really saying that the government's going to have to look at, you know, battery standards. It's going to have to be a whole life cycle uh, approach and looking at the manufacturing standards and then, you know, looking at increasing the, the recycling infrastructure and, Really, really honing in and looking at how we can reuse these technologies as well, such as obviously the stadium example is very small, but how we can look at the wider, you know, the wider um, rollout of reuse of reusing these uh, battery the battery technology to store energy. Yeah, thank you very much, Des. Thank you. Okay. Um, okay. Thank you, Mr. Boylan. Thank you, Chair. Thanks very much for for your presentation. I mean. Just to follow on a wee bit from what Andrew said there, I mean, obviously the European Economic Social Committee says there's potential for considerable potential for recovery of materials from the botanies, but there's still only 10% of the material being recovered. Mm -hmm. um, and, and those measures are, you know, they're looking at that at the minute, how they can better that. But my question is, is, is there, um, are there specific sites for disposal of the botanies? Or can you answer that? Or can you look into that first? Yeah, I, I do know. And the, are they currently being exported to particular countries? Yeah. Yeah. Well, as Mr. Moore pointed out to them, I, I haven't got the, I haven't, didn't look exactly at the countries that the batteries are being exported to for recycling, but I'd suggest, I did, I did look up, I did look into that um, site in Canada, and they're basically, I suppose, the industry leaders in terms of the amount of material they can recover, but as I said, commonly it is, you say, it's around 10%. So, um, I will look further into that there and see and 
and get a more sort of comprehensive picture of where the recycling is taking place. So I just want to ask questions. Is it correct to say there's more waste with electric vehicles than not compared with hydrogen, or have you have you looked at that at all? Of course. Um, well, at the, at the, I suppose the, the the rollout of hydrogen technology in, in cars, which is where the EV um, technology is more widely going to be used, hasn't really been looked at. I think the potential for hydrogen is seen to be more in the HGV um, sector, but I'm. And I haven't actually looked at the amount of waste that they're involved in compared to the amount of waste in terms of production or in terms of, um, I suppose, the efficiency of either of either Sorry. technology. But I can look at that also. No, appreciate it. Thanks very much for your presentation. Thank you, Chair. Martina, we can't hear you. There we are. I'm unmuted now. Um, okay, thank you. Um, thank you for that presentation, uh, Des. And I just want to pick up on what Andrew had said on the issue of electric vehicles, um, because a note uh, from your presentation and on the paper was specifically dealing with the waste associated with electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. And you said we, we are going to end up with waste management problems in the future. Um, now, the rest of the battery is, is without doubt an issue, and I would support what, what Andrew said about looking at the rest of the world. So perhaps that's something you could come back to. Maybe another issue that, Chair, we need to deal with as well is the final issue of ensuring that we have the right infrastructure in place to allow people to take up greener vehicles. Now, the charge point network is in disarray in the north, right across the north, and um, it's certainly the Serene Dairy, and we need maintenance, upgrade, and rollouts. And I'm conscious that this is the responsibility, I believe, of the electricity supply board. So many of the charging points are no longer supported by the original manufacturers. So, Chair, we need to go back to that because that's an issue. And I would like to ask, as you know, has, has there been any research done? on what our charge point network needs to look like, for instance, projecting into future to 2030, because I propose that this is something that should be examined. Hi, uh, thanks for that question. Um, the, I know the Committee for Climate Change have made some recommendations on this, on the size that the network needs to get to be um, for the, you know, the support the, the UK government's ambitions, I suppose, for um, for the growth in EV, and I didn't actually prepare that for that presentation, but I actually have to. Uh, I could I could I write you after the meeting because I have I have that in, in the, there was another paper I submitted. I'm not sure if it was in your packs. Um, it was basically around um, you know further working for the 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 potential inquiry, and I have the figure. I just don't have it. I just don't have it in front of me right now. Um, of the. As I say, the Committee for Climate Change, yes, they have done quite a comprehensive review of what is, what's needed in Northern Ireland in terms of EV and hydrogen infrastructure to support the, the transfer to green fuels, I suppose, is the answer. And I will, I'll send that on straight after the meeting. Okay. Miss um, Kimmins? Thanks, Chair, and thanks, guys, for your presentation. Just on the water paper on page two of the report, you noted that privatisation came with disadvantages such as the dramatic rise of household bills. So just to wonder if you could expand on that a wee bit. 
Um, okay, yeah, sure, no problem. Um, well, I suppose one of the major drive for privatisation was that um, the those serious uh, deficiencies in the, infra the water infrastructure, water and sewage infrastructure in GB. So initially, you know, whenever they were privatised, the prices um, increased rapidly to cover the um, to cover the cost of the, the the investment that was required. But you know, the the, the cost that I I can't. I have to have um, the information from here. Just, but the, the prices did peak in about two thousand and eight, and have since then have been declining every you know year on year. Sorry, um, just in relation to that, actually, we we were going to take the, the water paper separate. Um, Liz, sorry, sorry. So, if you want sorry, to ask, some, if there's something you wanted to ask particularly around um, the paper around um, waste. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I is. <laughs> That's okay. And I'm happy to bring it back and 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 um, the, you asked about the, the reuse, and has there been any examples in Ireland? I haven't yeah. seen any. I haven't seen any examples. As I said, you know, one of the I suppose the main examples that's used um, is that is the Amsterdam Stadium, and there are you know, you know, there are potential um, uses in terms of like commercial settings, like factories and, and um, factories and large um, shopping complexes and stuff that would have high energy demands. Um, but I haven't seen any specific examples for based in Ireland. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Thank you. And I've only just one other question, um, just around um, the, the point that you made in the brief about batteries opening in between 80 and 85% of their original capacity mm -hmm. and then are expected and reassembled in the new uh, repurposed packs. So I just I take it that these batteries will continue to look lose capacity then in their repurposed role. Um, so is it merely in the original problem of waste or you know how do you portray that? Yeah, well, I think whenever the EV uh, manufacturers give supply the batteries, the example again, looking at the Amsterdam Arena, sorry for using that as an example all the time, but they guarantee the use to be able to store the energy for another 10 years. So as you said, it extends the life of the battery for another 10 years, but it doesn't do away with the need then to recycle the materials at some point as well. You know, it's really, as you said, putting it down to that line, but at least it's extending the life of the actual pack and the materials in it. Yeah, and I suppose, I suppose in a sense, then it means that you're not constantly purchasing new ones. So it's 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 uh, decreasing the use of, of batteries. I suppose in that sense. But look, that that's that's really all I want to raise. Thanks, Des, and thank you, Chair. Apologies for my uh, jumping the gun a bit there. No, it's fine. No, no problem. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Beggs. Sorry, Roy. Unfortunately, there was a lot of there was a lot of disturbance when you were speaking. Um, we couldn't really make out what you were saying. So, could you just check your mic again? 
you're sounding a bit like a Dalek, but. <laughs> <laughs> No, we're really not catching that properly at all. Would you mind sending it by email and we can um, try to um, get Des to answer? We'll move. Sorry? No. no. Apologies. Des, if you'd like to um, go into the second briefing and then perhaps um, we might be able to get Roy back again at, at a later stage, if that's okay. Okay. Okay, go ahead then. So this, this second briefing is really on the paper and water and sewage business models um, in the UK and Ireland and it, with a focus on how the how the water, how their the businesses are actually funded. Um, so looking at Northern Ireland Water was established as a GOCO in 2007, government owned company, sorry. And it was obviously, it was originally, originally intended that it was going to be financed through customer charges but up until now, non-domestic um, users have paid a charge have paid a charge for their water service, while um, the NA executive has paid a subsidy in lieu of domestic charges being introduced. NA water does remain a go-co under law, but because of this subsidy, it is treated as an NDPB for public expenditure purposes, and it has identified this dual status as a strategic risk in its business plan and has called for a sustainable funding model. I know um, department officials already briefed the committee on the funding required for PC21 and the challenges we're facing in meeting their funding requirement. Just going to look really briefly at the, at the GB model with more of a focus on Wales. So um, the water company in Wales were privatised in 1989 and this was mainly in order to raise revenue to um, provide access to capital markets in order to fund investment. Um, to ensure the interests of customers and the environment were secured, three separate bodies were set up to regulate the activities of the water companies. These were the National Rivers Authority, which is now the Environment Agency, the Drinking Water Inspector, and the Office of Water Services, who set the prices for the water companies. We're looking at just more typically Welsh Water. Welsh Water is unique in that it is an not-for-profit company with no shareholders. It is financed through charges and borrowing from the capital markets with no government support and all the financial surpluses are used for the benefit of customers. The main purpose of this business model is to reduce the asset financing costs, which the industry single out of cost. Financing efficiency savings are then used to build up reserves to insulate Welsh Water and its customers from any unexpected costs and are also improve its credit rating so that Welsh Water's cost of finance can be kept as low as possible. Well, Welsh Water supposed sees borrowing as an efficient way of financing the construction of long life assets. It spreads the costs over the life of the assets, which can be up to 100 years, meaning there's no undue burden on the customers of today for the pay for assets that are going to last for many years. Welsh Water finances its capital programme through debt in the form of low-cost bonds raised on the capital markets. It has very strong credit rating to borrow and can borrow money at very competitive rates. Um, for example, in 2006, it just it issued a 50-year bond with a real interest rate of 1.4%. Welsh Water says this is very significant because service debt is the most significant cost for the water companies in England and Wales, accounting for a third of the average household bill across the sector. And therefore, a 1% increase in the cost of capital can add 5% to bills. Scottish Water is more similar to Northern Ireland. It, it, Northern Ireland Water is a public corporation, it, meaning that it operates commercially, but it is guided by the Scottish government for its general cor corporate policy. 
again, similarly to Northern Ireland water, it is regulated in the same in a under a, it's regulated similarly to England and Wales um, water companies as well as NI Water with the um, with prices set by an independent regulator and water quality also regulated. Um, almost ninety percent of Scottish water. Scottish Water's expenditure is funded through revenue raised from corporate charges and the remainder is borrowed from the Scottish Government. It receives no subsidy at all. And the average household bill in, in is £46 lower than in England and Wales. Looking at Irish Water then, it was set up in 2014. It was like any water, it was intended that it would be self-financing. But it has since been determined that taxation would cover the cost of water with only excessive use paid for. Um, households of up to four residents have an allowance of 213,000 litres per year with 25,000 litres for each additional resident. This is this is, was based on an independent assessment of how much water would be used and it's, it goes above it goes above the, suppose, the estimated amount of water people would need. So the likelihood of additional um, charges is small, I guess. In 2018, 73% of Irish Water's operating revenue was from government subsidy and 55% of its capital expenditure came via the subsidy. Um, in addition to the subsidy and commercial revenue from non-domestic users, Irish Water also has borrowing powers um, limited up to €2 billion. Um, Euros. This is guaranteed by the Irish government. Uh, I've looked across, the, I've, looked, I've looked a bit wider than, the, than GB and Ireland, just to for some comparison, and the OECD has done a number of a good bit of research in this area. This shows that there are, there are variations in pricing structures, but increasingly across countries, they reflect the full cost of providing service and investing in assets. And measures such as pay allowances are in decline. Denmark, Germany, Belgium, and the UK have the highest charges, whereas countries like Spain and Italy have lower charges. But this has seen them fail to invest, and they are now increasing um, prices to meet the need for investment. Where charging is in place, there are higher levels of customer satisfaction due to the quality of service. Um, across Europe, there are variations in the way charges are administered. There are fixed charges, volumetric charges. However, the trend is moving towards fixed charges and towards or away from fixed charges towards more volumetric charging, which is seen as far. The most common business model in Europe is for um, commercial public utilities, similar to NI Water, Scottish Water, Irish Water, to run. Um, water services, but there are also examples of private com companies operating water and sewage services on behalf of public bodies under a, a contract or a concession basis. In Germany and Denmark, for example, water is a, is a local government issue. In some cases, local authorities contract out all water and san sanitation services. I suppose the main concern about water charges is the affordability um, for vulnerable groups and those in low incomes, retired people, etc. But the OECD, the OECD priority, or the OECD recommends that policy should target these vulnerable groups, and that this is far more efficient than cross-the-board subsidies. And many many countries that don't that haven't have had lower charges or serious financial deficits in the water sector, and this has resulted in under in underfunding and necessary maintenance of expansion and water water treatment infrastructure. This ultimately leads to reduced service quality and increased health and environmental risks. Um, and that, uh, that's that briefing as well. Thank you, Des. If there's any questions. Mr. Boylan.
Yes, sir. Thank you. And Des, thanks very much. Just two questions, really, in terms of, see, in terms of Scottish Water is partly funded through revenue borrowing um, from the Scottish Government. Could you expand a wee bit on that model, please? Um, yeah, well, Scottish Water can, Scottish Water, um, about 10% of um, Scottish Water's um, funding, funding comes from borrowing from the Scottish Government. But um, as I said, the majority of it comes through, comes through, um, comes through direct charge for customers. Um, I mean, you're talking in terms of uh, like any water can any water can borrow some money from the department, but obviously that comes through the department. Um, that, that the department that's really department borrowing from the executives um, limit, you know, borrowing limit. So the Scottish model would be the same. So in terms of, the, I mean. I was going to be careful always to ask you this question. In, in terms of the best model across the world that to facilitate all the people you're saying, those, those most vulnerable, those um, able to pay, and those those protecting those and low, low income and everything else, and, and the models that you've looked at, what, what, can you can you outline which you think would be a most a more suitable model, or are people going the way of of what's happening here, or in, in Irish water or Scottish water? Well, I think just well looking at independent, rather than I suppose my opinion, I guess I've looked at independent assessments. I've looked at looked at the best model, and you can in the countries that like like Denmark, Germany, where they have a full cost recovery model, there does seem to be far higher levels of customer service and water quality. So, and independent assessments would suggest that they deliver the best value for money across the board. You know, so the cost recovery model. It brings it brings about the highest levels of service, the last levels of water quality. So, you know, independently, it has been independently assessed to say that that is the best model. No, it's, it's just it's just a question for because of the research you've done. But Des, thanks very much for the research paper. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Miss Anderson. Uh, thank you, Chair and uh, Des. Thank you again for that. Des, um, I noted in your paper that you said it was unclear how Irish Water can access funds from the private equity companies as, at a competitive rate. You were saying that given it relies so heavily on government subsidies. So, yeah. can Water cannot borrow like that because of their dependence on subsidies. So, but meanwhile, Irish Water, from what I'm reading, what you're saying, is doing exactly that. I know you're questioning uh, the competitive rate. So could yeah. you elaborate a bit on that, on that statement of your findings? I think, um, I, I think at the time when I was writing that, when I, when I wrote that paper, I was basically questioning, you know, obviously the Welsh, the Welsh borrowing model is based on the fact that they have a guaranteed revenue source, which is customer, which is customer bills. And they've been able, to, the fact that they don't pay out any kind of um, dividends or anything to shareholders has enabled them to, you know, get their um, borrowing rate down to a very low level. But I suppose the Irish, what the Irish, the difference between Ireland, the, the, um, the, the Republic of Ireland's borrowing powers and the Northern Ireland water borrowing powers is the Irish government, um, the Irish government guarantees their borrowing. So, you know, it's, it's able to get that lower rate, I guess, because it's based on a guarantee from the Irish government, whereas Northern Ireland water hasn't really got any, as an NDPB, hasn't really got any borrowing powers. So, you know, it doesn't really compare in the same way. Sorry, is that? Um, okay, I probably would like to reflect on that a bit and maybe even write to the department chair just to see 
if they can clarify because whilst they don't have the same borrowing powers, I just thought by reading what you presented, Des, that you were suggesting that they could have. Um, but it, is it the fact that they're not getting this support? For instance, would it be by the executive or would it be have to come from the British Treasury or where would that sort of, whether it's authorization or otherwise need to come from in order to enable them, for instance, to look at borrowing? Yeah, well, the, bar, the, the borrowing um, reg laws are currently set by Treasury, and I suppose any water would have to borrow from the department who would have to borrow within the, the borrowing limits of the, you know, of the overall executive, and that there, you know, obviously that creates long-term budgetary commitments and stuff, and it's all it would be assessed that way. But I can I can um, look into that further and write to you if that's okay. Yeah, I, I just would like to know if they were borrowing. And does that then, is that offset against the executive's budget? So, for instance, if they were to borrow at the British Treasury, then would take it off the executive? Um, or is there an opportunity or, you know, if, if they could avail of that uh, potential facility in the same way as the, the Irish Water uh, can access that fund? Um, well, I don't think it's the same way as the Irish government can, because that was written into their final legislation that they had a statutory okay. borrowing power. And so I just think that it's, um, it, you know, we are, we operate under treasury uh, under treasury laws under treasury regulations here. So it would be it would be something that I guess it would have to be negotiated between the executive and treasury. Okay, but well, look, maybe you could write back to us with a wee bit more clarity on that, and then we can discuss whether we should take it forward. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Mr. Bags. This time we can hear you this time. Thank you. Oh, good, good. Um, uh, <clears throat> in, in terms of um, the inadequate treatment work system that Northern Ireland Water currently provides um, because of its limited resources, um, hundreds of urban areas uh, are restricted in terms of um, uh, planning opportunities for, for businesses and indeed new residential properties or even uh, intensification within town centres. Um, so I'm trying to see what exactly has been done to overcome that difficulty. Uh, I would say that there's, uh, and it would be helpful if you could just clarify what the options are. Uh, I, I would say that one option is either the Northern Executive funds it or enables the Northern Water to borrow money and put it against the executive borrowing limit, limits, or alternatively uh, to uh, develop some new funding model. Are they the three options? And it does seem as if we're doing none of the three options, we're just sitting there. So would that be a correct summary? Yes, um, I think it would be a correct summary. Just just going back to, I suppose, the department and NA Water's calls in their in their business plan, they they have called for a sustainable funding model for a number of years, and I guess the current model is isn't that you know it it continues to be identified as um, suboptimal, and that there's no real guarantee over the amount of money they're going to have from year to year that would enable any kind of long term planning. So um, I think your assessment is is correct. So, is there, are you aware of any discussion happening at Executive to try and solve this problem, or is everybody just parking it for another another year? This is a year since the Executive 
uh, has has been in place and not taken any decision on it. No, I'm sorry, I, I'm not aware of any discussions that are being taken that are taking place. I mean, just really here at the committee level, I'd be aware of. Okay, and and then when when I have you and the technology is working, just in terms of of uh, the, the batteries, I understand that uh, motor manufacturers had a requirement to ensure that they manufactured cars which were recyclable, and if if there's only twenty percent of batteries can be recycled, is that not a major difficulty in terms of environmentally friendly uh, manufacturing and indeed that the the electric cars is not the panacea that perhaps everybody thought that they were until that's uh, uh, that issue is solved. Yeah, well, I think it definitely, I think even in the paper, Mr. Moore's pointed it out, and in the paper, I tried to elaborate on it, but it is obviously a potentially massive issue. But um, I guess EV uptake at the minute has been quite low. But if we want to get to anywhere near the kind of numbers that the government are planning for by 2030 and beyond, then they're going to have to do some serious, there's going to have to be some serious investment in recycling infrastructure and, you know, battery manufacturing standards that will deal with those issues. It's probably not such a massive issue right now, but it will be down the line, you know, potentially a huge issue. Um, generally, the, the, the polluter pays has been a principle that has been used. So um, is there not a requirement for the, um, the the car industry, if they're going to use battery technology to have uh, to invest in, in getting a, a solution to that problem as well as government? Yeah, I think the onus is on the car industry. Well, the onus is on the car industry now to deal with the waste from the batteries. I think China is probably the country that has the highest use of EV vehicles, and the Chinese government put all the um, responsibility to deal with the waste from the batteries on the manufacturer. And you know, the current regulations require manufacturers here to deal with the batteries too. So, but I think and more having a more long-term approach where the batteries, the battery waste is dealt with sustainably, will require obviously. A combination of manufacturer and industry, you know, data method. Okay, thank you. Mr. Muir. Thank you, Chair, um, and thank you, Des. Uh, just one issue: just um, the way we use water is very different today than it was last year because the non-domestic usage has reduced and domestic levels have increased because of the pandemic and the changes in working arrangements. That obviously has an impact potentially on NI Water's financial position because they have charging in place for non-domestic customers. Mm -hmm. And it's maybe just the potential impact around that and the other models where there's charging in place for both domestic and non-domestic, you know, that provides a, a balanced income really in relation to that. So I'm assuming in, for example, Wales, there is charging both domestic and non-domestic and provides a balance in that regard? Yeah, there is. Yeah, I mean, across GB, there's um, full cost recovery, you know, from domestic and um, from domestic and um, non-domestic users. I don't know, you know, the imp I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to answer the question on whether, you know, the, the impact of this year and, as you say, the decline in um, non-domestic yeah. users would, have, would use would have on the NI Water's finances, probably something that NI Water would be. Better yes. to um, answer. Sorry. 
No, it's okay. And then the other one was just lastly, um, in relation to the water charges in Wales, they actually went down the costs being charged around that. And is that, is that possibly as a result of the model that they're operating on then? There's, it's a really essentially a not-for-profit arrangement? Yeah, I think, well, you know, that's that's the main reason. Well, they're able to, you know, obviously they talk about, you know, reducing the cost of service and debts. You know, that has a real that has a big impact on the prices and they charge the um, on the prices they charge the customers. And they've been able to, you know, after an initial period of price rises, they you know, after, shortly after privatisation, they've been able to roll down their, you know, the prices that they charge. And they also have the highest levels of customer satisfaction, you know, and other key sort of performance indicators they score the highest across the industry in GB. Yeah. Thank you very much, Des. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Any further questions? No? Okay. Thank you, Des. I very much appreciate that. And I think that we'll be hearing from you in a couple of weeks' time. Okay. No problem. Thank you, Chair. Okay. Thanks very much. Okay, members. Um, if you're content to move on to the next item, which is our forward work programme at item nine. Just draw your attention to that at page 127. That takes us to the period ending the 12th of, um, the week ending the 12th of March. So if you're content with that, obviously um, there is a certain amount of um, um, change um, may take place, but if you're content in broad terms with that. Moving then to any other business, um, just one point that I'd like to raise, and that's just in relation to um, smart cards for the Strangford Ferry, and I've had correspondence with regards to that. Um, smart cards, which were um, expi expiring between March and July last year and between the 8th of January and the 6th of February this year, were extended for one year. But if you buy a smart card, it's for 20 journeys. And obviously, there have been, hasn't been really the opportunity to be able to use those journeys for those who have cards, which perhaps were ex, ex, um, expiring in December, for example. So we really just write to the department just to see whether or not there's any consideration being given um, to look at those cards which haven't um, um, been totally used. Because obviously, there's a, there's a considerable expense associated with that. Um, and people haven't had the opportunity to use um, the cards and to the frequency that they would have previously done. So, if you're content, we raise that. And um, Mr. Muir, you also have an issue just in relation to MOTs. Yeah, thank you, Chair. Um, the last time in DVA, we're in, they gave us an update around MOTs, and they said that uh, once a vehicle is due to be brought forward for MOT, the customer will receive a reminder notice. Now, I've been contacted by people who haven't received that reminder notice. I don't know whether other members of the committee are similar to that. And as a result, they have uh, had to, you know, they went online, noticed that they're, uh, they had to book the uh, a date for their MOT because their car is new, for example, and all the rest of it. And I've been really struggling to get a date. So there's one to see an update from DVA in a very simple, clear manner about what the crack is with MOTs. You know, are they sending out reminder notices? What's the story? Because people also, when their TEC is coming up to the six months, they're booking their MOT, but they don't need to do that because then it's extended to 12 months and then they're having to get a refund on that. So we need to get more clarity on the situation and whether those reminder letters are being sent out. Okay, agreed. Thank you. Anyone else? I have one other item, obviously, to go back on, which is um, the tabled um, response at page three of your papers, which was the draft response to the Committee for Finance regarding 
um, the committee's draft budget considerations. Have members had an opportunity to to look at that um, correspondence? Are you content? I'm getting some nods, yes, and some thumbs up. Okay, thank you. Great, thank you very much. Okay, and then if you're content and there's no other business, um, the next meeting will take place at 10 a.m. on Wednesday, the 17th of February, in the Senate Chamber. The committee will receive a briefing from representatives of the Northern Ireland Seaports and also a briefing from representatives from Retail NI. If members are content, we shall adjourn. Thank you. Thank you, Assembly. Senate Chamber. Program signed.